Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. This is the fourth and final episode in our Real Change series, which is a string of interviews with changemakers featured in Sharon Salzberg's new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, which offers a new perspective on how activism and meditation practice can uplift each other. These four individuals are making change on the ground and in real people's lives through activism, outreach, art, and policy. Our guest today is Arian Moyayed, perhaps best known for his role as Stewie in the TV show Succession. But Arian is also the co-founder of Waterwell, an organization working to tackle society's issues through theater, art, and education. Arian believes that theater, like meditation, can be used as an empathy-building tool. Let's listen in to my conversation with Sharon Salzberg and Arian Moaya. Arian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm here with Sharon Salzberg, as you know. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Listen, I wanted to start with something I heard you say in another interview. You said that you're making theater that changes lives. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Waterwell Drama Program. Sure. Waterwell is an organization that I co-founded at the age of 22. So that was 18 years ago for all those wanting to do math. And essentially, Waterwell was a reaction and a response to, quite honestly, 9-11 at the time. Tom Ridgely and I, who's the co-founder, we believe that art and theater has a central voice in trying to better society through the ways of theater, which is basically an empathy-building mechanism. Now, obviously, when we were 22, we weren't using big words like empathy at the time. But over years, over 18 years, we've been able to Waterwell as an organization has been able to kind of focus its energies on being a group of artists and educators and producers, really, that try to like tackle some of the biggest issues that we're dealing with through theater and art and education. Waterwell now, 18 years strong, is an organization that has three prongs to it, two parts nonprofit and one part for-profit. On the nonprofit side, we have a theater engine that's run by the great Lee Sunday Evans. She is our artistic director. The education side is run by the director of education, Heather Lanza, and we are a major vendor of New York City's Department of Education, where we teach grades 6 through 12 every year, about 250 students. It's a free public school, not only world-class arts training, but also civics and how to be a better citizen in this society and in all societies. Classes like the Artist's Citizen is basically the the ethos of that program. And on the for-profit side, we have a pretty new film division that essentially is doing, you know, works that are not usually produced outside in the mainstream world. I wrote and directed the first ever short-form thriller called The Accidental Wolf, which was nominated for an Emmy. So that organization, under the ethos of artists as citizen, has been running and serving our communities to better kind of society. Examples of changing the world, you know, changing the world is something that two 22-year-olds wrote. And we have now, you know, refined and kind of like get more specific with it. But a lot of it is being very, very responsive to what the world is needing. I'm an immigrant. I was born in Iran. And two years ago, when there was a separation of the children at the border, 
I and the rest of the organization felt it was necessary to combat some of that. And what we did is we found and created this new show called The Courtroom, which was a reenactment of one woman's deportation case in 2007 during Bush administration. And it was this legal kind of Kafka-esque kind of situation. And instead of just putting it into theaters and just giving it to the, you know, the liberal New York City audiences, which already kind of are on our same value systems, we went to the immigration communities and we went into the lawyer communities in mock courtrooms and uh, Thurgood Marshall courtroom. And, and we really just gave it back to the community and kind of really gave it to them more than anything. So that's kind of Waterwell on uh, you know a, a grand scheme. You know what I found especially interesting about the courtroom is that, as you say, you called it a reenactment. Mm-hmm. What was so chilling was the sort of haphazard way this woman fell into breaking the law. She was almost prompted to by the DMV, and it unfolds from there. So, I mean, that very directly addresses the insecurity that immigrants can feel who do not have papers. Absolutely. Yeah. Essentially, the case is a young Filipino woman by the name of Elizabeth came to this country on what's called a K-1 visa, which is she married an American citizen. And six months in with very limited English skills, she went to the DMV to ask to get a state ID because all she had was her Filipino passport. She is not a citizen yet, nor does she have a green card. And at the DMV, they have asked her, would you like to register to vote? And not knowing any better, she said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you do in America, right? You vote. That's one of the tenets of our society. And so she votes. And then at her green card test, they ask her if she's ever impersonated a citizen or voted. And when she says yes to the second question and no to the first question, they automatically rip up her application and put her in deportation proceedings and she loses. And so now the audience um, has to... Um, which are mostly American citizens that were born here, have to feel what it looks like to be an immigrant dealing with this. They're all transcripts. I wrote nothing. These are all direct transcripts. The first minute is the judge and Elizabeth's lawyer, Richard Haynes, speaking about whether or not Elizabeth needs a translator or not, just right in front of her. And if I were to tell you that happens to every immigrant, all the, it happens to my mom to this day where they talk about her in front of her without asking her. And so what we get as audience members is the fundamental tool that theater does better than kind of anything else, which is enforces an audience to feel what it looks like to be in my shoes in a live process. And so that empathy building is the way that we can better understand society. I say this to our students at our school all the time. The reason why at high school in all across the country, you read Death of a Salesman and Romeo and Juliet is not because we're trying to like annoy you. It's because those plays best understand what it must be like to have differences. Death of a Salesman is done because what does it mean to have a whole life where you have nothing and you're trying to build every step of the way and technology outplays you and mortgages outplay you and your pass out. How do you deal with it? That's why this is done. That's what the Greeks did. That's why we read those Greek plays. Those Greek plays that we now have, years ago we did the Persians. Uh, Aeschylus is the Persians, which is the oldest living play that you know society has. And Aeschylus 
just fought in the Greek and Persian War for the Greeks, killed Persians, and then wrote an empathetic play about what it must feel like to lose a war with Persian characters. How better are we going to understand the differences of our society than to do that? And that's what the hope at Waterwell and the Waterwell Drama Program and Waterwell Films is trying to do. Great. So Sharon, how did you find Arian and come to include him in your book, Real Change? Well, yeah, how did you? <laughs> yeah, how did I find you? I'm so happy. I co-founded the Insight Meditation Society when I was 21 years old. Wow. And that was a lot more than 18 years ago, but I, I really related to that. Yeah. I should look up our original mission statement, like, what in the world did we say we were, we were about? I was having a conversation with Bell Hooks, who's a friend of mine, and Bell, I always tease her, is like so precise with words and language. I can only liken her to like a Buddhist scholar who's like picking apart every word, you know. And she didn't like the term social change. I told her I was writing a book on mindfulness, loving kindness, and social change. And she didn't like social change because she felt its association was too limited to protesting. And she said, what about art? And what about creative endeavor? Isn't that social change? And so that sent me down a path of feeling you're right, you know, of course. And who do we count on for not only empathy, which was a beautiful description, but courage? You know, who, who's going to show like a different way or, or another angle on things? And so I, I really began to explore I think it was primarily theater, actually, you know, playwrights and artists, actors, and who were bringing that to life. And I, I think we're forging a path for the rest of us in many ways. Well, first of all, I'm honored. And immediately I'm kind of like, my insecurity is just like, I should have given you other people to write about. <laughs> well, there could always be a sequel because now it's, you know, I mean, that particular topic was so important for me. And I actually want to ask you something that's also in the book that's a little bit associated with that, where I was in the audience when the Dalai Lama was meeting with some people at Emory University, and on the panel with him was Alice Walker wow. and Richard Gere. And the first question that was asked was, do you think that great art, great creativity has to come out of suffering? Mm has to come out of pain. And so that's one question. But the question I really wanted to ask you was his response to that was a little bit confused, you know, because it's not the way they would necessarily think about great art. He said, we define something great as an artistic endeavor, depending on what happened in the mind and heart of the person creating it. Hmm. That's where beauty lies. That's where creativity lies. It's really about the transformation of the person mm-hmm. who is offering this. And I would add probably the audience as well, you know, mm-hmm. the recipient. But it was such a different take. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. You know, I'm going to actually talk about that first part, not because I have an answer to it, just because mm-hmm. it scares me a little bit more. Um Oftentimes I get asked, you know, Waterwell has a bunch of entities. It's got a huge board and staff members and, and we do a lot of projects and, and I have an acting career and I have children. And oftentimes I get asked in questions, how do you manage all of this? Like, how does it, how do you possibly make it all happen? I'm sure you probably get questions like that often as well. 
And for me, my response is, and I hope it doesn't sound flip, but it's the truth, is none of the work that we do, which is hard work, hard work and love. That's the two mottos that I really kind of believe in, hard work and love. And none of that work was as hard as being an immigrant in this country. None of it. It was harder to be an immigrant. It was harder for my mom and my dad to learn a language at 45 years of age. It was harder for them to go to a grocery store and be like, where are my things? It's harder for them to lose friends, societies. And so I witnessed that up close and personal at a very young age. And I watched them struggle with that. And I watched them painfully kind of like go through it. And why did they do that? And you have to ask your question, yourself these questions at a young age of like, why did you do that? Well, you're, you're running away from a, you know, a regime that wasn't free, that was never going to give us a chance. We are the only family on my mom or dad's side that's in the United States. And I say that to say that that pain that I saw in them and obviously some of it that came to me as well. I was a translator at a very young age. At nine or 10, I was translating major rent documents and you know, like everything. So I don't consider it as pain. I consider it as almost duty to my parents who like risked everything to give me a chance to talk to you. So every day, I think of that as, in a way, like a daily meditation of like, I'm so grateful and thankful to be able to be awake, to be able to have privileges that many people don't have, especially privileges that Black Americans don't have. And I am very honored and lucky and thankful that this society like brought me in here. And so that's how I like look at art. You know, August Wilson, this amazing African-American playwright who wrote a play for every decade of the 1900s. Many plays, including Fences, was made into a movie. Anyway, this amazing man has a philosophy on art that I really think is a philosophy on life. And it is all great art runs on three cylinders. The interpersonal, how two people relate with one another, Romeo and Juliet. The global the Montagues and the Capulets, like how are they? And the most important and the often forgotten, especially in Western world, is the spiritual. And because in the spiritual realm, many people think that it means God or it means like Jesus or Muhammad or whatever. And it's nothing to do with that. If you think of The Tempest as a play outside of the interpersonal and the global, you have nature as the spirits. If you think of King Lear, you have the interpersonal with him and his daughters. You have the global of who's going to have the power. We also have like, you know, crack winds, like try to get rid of me. And if your art or to remove the word art and your practice or your whatever does not run on those three cylinders, that's where I make my decisions as an artist. Mm -hmm. The other question I get often asked is like, how do you always pick like the, the coolest, best projects? It's because I always am looking to make sure those three cylinders are always being checked. And if it doesn't do one of those things, it's not a project for me. I can't give you my hard work and love with that. I think I have this right. You performed Hamlet in Iran. Is that correct? Close. I wish. I tried. <laughs> um, no. Uh -huh. I performed Hamlet in the States, but we set it 
1917 Tehran, 100 years ago. And we did that purposefully. You know, have you guys ever heard of the, the phrase in the theater world called colorblind casting? Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of that? Mm-hmm. Colorblind casting, for those who don't know, is essentially we don't see color when we're doing, you know, Hamlet. You can be black, brown, green, red, you know, female, male, age. It doesn't matter. And so in society for the past 20 or 30 years, American theater has been, you know, diving into this. A lot of that's amazing because it gives artists of different colors an opportunity. But a lot of it's detrimental too, because we lose the essence of what it means to have color. So our 1917, this goes back to this Hamlet that you're talking about. It was set in 1917 Tehran at a time period where the Iranian aristocracy, a kingship, you know, you can imagine that, basically was like, we should westernize as quickly as humanly possible maybe even contemplated for about a year making English the number one language so they can be more cooler with the Europeans and maybe cooler with the United States. And so all of a sudden people in Iran were now wearing suits and all of a sudden they were wearing mustaches and they were now all of a sudden looking European. And that's where our Hamlet takes place. But then the ghost of Hamlet comes and he only speaks to him in Farsi wearing traditional gear from 300 years ago. And so Hamlet takes that knowledge and says, oh my gosh, the problem is not madness. The problem is we're trying to be something that we're not. And so for the rest of the play, Hamlet speaks in Farsi. And so that's where we said it. That's step one. That's the art of it. Like everything that you guys are doing, you can't end it there. Now, all of a sudden, we deep dove into our communities, the Iranian communities, and invited every Iranian community on the East Coast to come and see this play, no matter where, what, who, what, anybody, and gave them access to it, gave them free tickets. So then all of a sudden, now, in the audience, you had half of the people were theater goers, and half of them were Iranians, many of which have never been to the theater before, much less seen Hamlet. And I know this because every night when Gertrude takes a drink of that wine at the end, every night there was a gasp. They would be like, no, 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 <laughs> Because they've never seen it before. And what happens when you bring two groups of people like that together into a room that don't have any business being together is you share common practices and you share common beliefs. Americans would come up to and would say, every American should see this production of Hamlet because they're not that different than us. And I know that sounds silly, but if you don't know, you don't know, right? If you don't know, you don't know. And then the Iranians would come and see the show and Iranians would say, I have never seen art prior to 1979 that has anything to do with Iran because the Iranian Islamic regime came in and said everything prior to 1979, forget all that. So now Iranians are saying, did we really live like this in 1970? So again, things that can happen when you put art out there that really tries to pump on those three cylinders and really tries to bring in audience members and people that don't have access to it. Well, it sounds like it would be transformational for the artists as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for me, selfishly, um, it's probably one of the best things I've ever done. It gave me an opportunity to understand who I was. I'm constantly, as all immigrants are dealing with this idea of like, am I an American? Am I an Iranian? Am I both? How do I deal with that? That is a question that we deal with all the time. 
in micro ways and in massive ways. My Persian name is Aryan. That's how you say it, Aryan. But I'm six years old. I'm in the United States. I don't speak a word of English. Not one person could say that. Also, I found out at six years of age about the Aryan race. Now imagine you being six years old and all of a sudden understanding like Aryans, Nazis, like you're like diving into this. And so a seven-year-old was like, oh my gosh, how do I fix this problem of people pronouncing my names? So I came up with two solutions. Number one is I just said, from now on, everyone's going to call me Aryan. So to this day, people call me Aryan, which is fine, and I go by it, but a seven-year-old made that distinction. What decisions have many of, any of the people that are listening here made at seven years old that have that much resonance in their DNA, like immigrants have to do? That's the first. And the second one is, I came up with an American name, and my American name was Chuck. And I go back to, you know, <laughs> north side of Chicago, and people still call me Chuck. Uh, which is so surreal, but real. You know, one of our contributors has a Japanese mother and an English father. He's also a professor at USC and a Zen Buddhist. But I talked to him about precisely this. Uh, My grandparents were immigrants. There are similar kind of issues they faced that my father faced. But he looks at it and he says, Japanese or American or Japanese or white? He said, I am fully both. Uh Uh-huh. And he embraces both as fully who he is, although people who look at him may make an assessment about which one is he, depending. Yeah, I mean, that is something that I'm dealing with all the time. I think of myself as both, but quite honestly, my decisions and and everything that I've done to this now is very Iranian to me. Um, I think of myself probably more of an Iranian that really is thankful and to be an American. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, everyone's got to deal with it on their own journey, and it's right. it's hard. It's like meditation. It's like you're going to go deep, and it's going to be really transformative, and you're going to be days of like, this sucks. <laughs> this yeah. sucks? So Sharon's an, expert. Sharon's an expert at addressing things like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I am. <laughs> My life. Um, actually, there's another word that you use that I'm really intrigued by, which is citizenship mm-hmm. or citizen. Mm-hmm. I have like a great passion for people voting and I've you know talked about that in different places and I've really emphasized that and someone called me on it and said well that's too small you know people have to learn how to be citizens yeah that's right it's not just the act of voting so I was intrigued by your your use of that word yeah I've been teaching this class at the school it's a seminar class now I don't have full time to do a full semester anymore but for high school freshmen I teach a seminar that's called the artist a citizen the word citizen is a big word. You know, it has a lot of ideas inside of that word. And we can, but the one thing that I want to say about the word citizen is that inside of that word is things that we are taking for granted more and more as we grow older. And that's because I believe, and again, smarter people, please tell me I'm wrong, um, is that we are getting further and further away of what the word spirit how spirituality is informed in us because it's been tainted sadly by religion. Um, now people have, have, um, can do both can do religion and spirituality and amazing. And, and, and that's awesome. I did not grow up with any religion. My parents were, 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 were kind of like bummer atheists in a way, like, <laughs> like F any, you know, a little bit of like an F you mentality about religion. 
but I say all this to say is inside of those uh, that 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 citizenship and that spirituality are words like respect, responsibility, citizenship, um, trustworthiness, fairness, and I take our students through processes and say, what's fair about this? And I use it with literature uh, and I use it with podcasts. This American Life, which is a podcast that we all know, This American Life did a little clip about love called 21 Chump Street about a young senior who had all great grades and a Hispanic gentleman, Puerto Rican in Miami and fell in love with this new transfer student. And he did everything to get this transfer student to go to prom with him. But at this time, he never knew that this transfer student was an undercover cop trying to get rid of drugs in the school. And so she asks him, hey, get me some marijuana and uh, I'll go to prom with you. And he's like, I don't do that. I don't want to do anything with that. And so This American Life follows this kid who gets the marijuana and sells it to her in this really complicated way. And then a week later, he's arrested and he can't go in the Marines. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda, 10 years later, writes a little short musical, about 20 minutes long, about that same thing. And so I have the students listen to both versions of it and discuss what's trustworthiness, what's fair about this, how does art deal with it? What is the art that this American life, a white, I'm guessing straight male, his POV versus Lin-Manuel Miranda's POV? And really dive into it. Two different value systems, and that's citizenship. That's the progress. That's the work. Mm -hmm. And it's messy. It's really, 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 really messy. And kids, you know, could get really angry and say stuff like, that's not what I believe. And you're like, let's deal with it. Instead of dealing with it as kids do now on Twitter or TikTok, instead of like F you on TikTok, you have to deal with it as a real person. That's the work that I think Waterwell kind of has been doing for 18 years and, and something that I kind of constantly want to grapple with. And get wrong. I want to be very clear to all your listeners and to, to everyone here. We fuck this up all the time. You know, we fail astronomically. So... You know, you mentioned meditation. I wonder, do you have a meditation practice? You know, um, I'm a completist. I like to complete things. Like I listen to all of the Beatles, you know, <laughs> I listen to everything that every one of the Beatles members has recorded ever. And I have two buddies, one Tom Ridgely, who uh, is the co-founder and Andy Chris, who works at Amazon. And we have these yearly challenges for ourselves. Three years ago, we challenged ourselves to do 10 minutes of meditation every day. And, um, and my wife, Chrissy Shields, meditates every day, has been doing it for years, who is the founder of Maha Mama. I did that every day for 10 minutes a day in the year of 2016. And it was the most rewarding and painful and hard <laughs> and beautiful thing I've kind of ever, I'm sorry, it was 2017, ever done. It was the year I was doing Hamlet. Um... And how did I get into it? I was doing a bunch of different things. First, I was just like, F it, I'm just gonna do my own thing. I'm just gonna sit down for 10 minutes and see what that's like. Then I did Headspace, then I did some reading, and then I did you know, common practices. 
I have a friend of mine, Indian American immigrant, first generation, and I would talk to him about it. I was like, how do you meditate? Well, my grandfather used to do this. And so like, I would go through all these different versions of it and really kind of dive into it. I think what's kind of remarkable about that in those 365 days is how much fear resides inside of us. And I'm constantly battling fear and constantly battling other people's fears, students, our communities that we're trying to serve, my own fears, my children's fears. We had a recent really tragic death in our lives. These new fears we're dealing with, with my 11-year-old nephew who passed away a couple weeks ago. And meditation and the practice of sitting with one's fears, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it, is scary, but it's really rewarding on the other side of that. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but I find it a constant reminder of how to deal with my deep, deep insecurities and, um, and also make my insecurities of the moment and not, you know, five years, two day, tomorrow. I'm tired of the tomorrow fears. The tomorrow fears are the tomorrow fears. I can only deal with the today fears. <laughs> and the today fears are really hard mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> They're super tough. And, and, and so that's kind of like, kind of my practice of it all. You know, hodgepodge, like everything else in my life. No, it's a beautiful description of meditation. I'm very sorry to hear about your nephew. Like, thank you. Likewise. Thank you. It's, it reminds us all, you know, he was 11 years old. He dealt with eight years of cancer. Wow. Um, cancer beat him, but it didn't beat his soul. And though it's really raw still inside of me right now, it feels like a process that will never be as hard as the process of dealing with eight years of cancers from the ages of three to 11. Mm -hmm. oh. mm -hmm. And it's a process that I can only be supportive of our family members and, and battling with, not to go back to this, but to hard work and love, just, just trying to put it out there. You know, we live in a pandemic. The Black Lives Matter situation is happening. In situation, it has been happening. It's been de devastating, you know, our fellow, fellow citizens for hundreds of years. Um, it's painful world that we live in right now and it feels like we're all trying to just take it one step at a time and having mm -hmm. a death of this 11 year old in the midst of all this you constantly ask yourself what's the point of all of this i mean like what are we all striving for like what is the end game and and that's a scary fucking question because sometimes the answer is i don't actually know i don't know and that that's fearful right then and there because that's what it means to be a citizen of the world. And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just even speaking it out loud selfishly, it makes me feel slightly better. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I appreciate mm -hmm. you both kind of like giving me a form to say that. Well, thank you so much, Ariane. Um, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure's all mine. We didn't even talk about succession. Well, I get to ask a question then. Do I, do I get to ask a question? Yes, Okay, please. you do all this fantastic work. It's really amazing. It's really moving. And I'm wondering if playing Stewie Husseini is sort of a fun break from all the good stuff you do. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, what a D-bag. Um, I kind of describe him as like, it's like me, but with like no care about anybody or anything except money. 
No empathy. No empathy. But, you know, it's funny you say that. You know, I also think he is empathetic. I think he really does care about Kendall. People will, you know, I've talked to many people that are like, you're insane. He, there's no way. <laughs> but I do think he cares about him. And, and, and he deals with it his own way. I just think he cares about the bottom line more than anybody. I mean, the last episode where Stewie says, he goes, listen, I'm going to make this a little bit more money than you are. And that's fine with me. And that means that you're out and I'm in. And so, yeah, it's fun. What a fun character. I mean, I'm also like, when in the the last decade has writing like this been given to young actors? You know, it's really amazing. And also we're all theater folks. Basically everyone Mm -hmm. in the company is theater folks. And so it's nice to be in a group of theater folks that are getting to play with the big wigs on HBO. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. I'm so. so glad that you did. Thank you. When Sharon said that you were going to be on, I thought, the guy from Succession? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. But I didn't know about all this other work, so I'm really thrilled to hear about it. So thank you, Ariane, so much for being here. And thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, guys. Much love to you both. You've been listening to actor and activist Ariane Moyayet and Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.